Well, it's been a long time coming, but we are finally back for episode 55 of Herbological Highlights. Uh, I'm Ben Marshall, and co-hosting, as always, is Tom Major. So what if, what do we have in store for people who have been exceptionally patient for this uh, next episode? Yeah, no, it's good to be back. It has been ages. Um, what have we got in store? We are going to be talking about water snakes, which are quite comical creatures. Um... Yeah, I'm so excited to be doing a podcast. It has been absolutely forever. Um, yeah, we're going to be talking about what they eat. What do water snakes eat? Which you might who, might, who knows? might think is obvious. You can't ask them. Yeah. Um, but as it turns out, they eat some different bits and bobs. And uh, yeah, they're quite fun little critters. And then there's another paper about why water snakes are important because you know everyone's always going around telling me oh i don't care about water snakes all water snakes could die and i just what what have water snakes done for me that's a big question that i get you know i hear a lot and uh <laughs> you know it's not immediately tangible what water snakes have done for us um because you know they're in the background they're sort of covert and uh yeah you know they're, they're shy they don't like to be the center of attention or be in the spotlight a lot um so i think this is good 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 opportunity for us in this podcast to kind of dispel some of the the hate that surrounds water snakes and uh really you know do them a service by um demonstrating their worth and it's also a final way to make up for disparaging water snake comments I made <laughs> several episodes ago. Yeah, I think there's only like, yeah, I mean, I had honestly forgotten that had happened, but um, I'm sure that many, many of our listeners who feel strongly about water snakes hadn't forgotten. So I think it's good that you bring that up. And it still, it still haunts me. Yeah, no, I know, I know that for sure. I absolutely think you should treat, you know, every opportunity you get to talk about water snakes as some kind of elaborate penance, which is going to be ongoing really until you die, I think. I don't think you can ever come fully back, but it's one of those ones. No, no, I... I, Yeah, it's one of those ones. I'd need to save a lot of water snakes. Yes, you do. You do. But, you know, I back you. I think, uh, yeah, I think you can really be a champion for the water snake cause. And uh, (laughs) I think that's what we're going to do today. And I'm excited. I'm just glad to be back. It's been ages since we recorded an episode. We've been doing all sorts of different stuff. We've been going on holiday um we've been doing field work uh that's sorting out visas new passports sorting out visas contract extensions yeah bureaucracy bureaucracy more travel yeah more bureaucracy writing words on pages um Mm. yeah lots of stuff going on so yeah it's nice to be back we're back in the driver's seat we're going to be doing podcasts again now every two weeks without fail um so thanks for your patience <laughs> i've just had it now and it's so there before it has to happen um but yeah yeah nah, it's good it's good to be back and um yeah nice one to talk about snakes in the first episode back nothing confusing like yeah you're not getting confused about number of limbs what the limbs do can they grow back where are the limbs yeah exactly oh this confusion they can't grow snake, back. snake streamlined simple gets the job done it eats stuff yeah yeah so, um, shall I introduce the first paper? Yeah, and I'll see if it is truly the first paper. <laughs> okay, so I've got here Virgin and King, 2019. What does the snake eat? Breadth, overlap, and non-native prey in the diet of three sympatric natricine snakes. Herpetological conservation and biology. Excellent. Is that what you're expecting? That was the correct answer. Because hmm. we're starting... We're starting small. We're starting 
with quite a quote, a, a, a quote, a close look at water snake diet, and then the second people will open up, open it up a little bit, and sort of broaden the scale. Yeah, yeah. I sort of talk about how much of an impact they are having on a sort of like landscape scale. This this is a little bit more, a bit more personal, I guess. I thought when you said we're starting off on a smaller scale, you meant the snakes themselves, because the snakes in this one are smaller than the snakes in the second one. Also true. Mm. So we're looking at also three true. species of little ditty North American snakes. You've got DK's brown snakes, a.k.a. Storaria DKI. If you're in America, this might be a familiar species to you. They're small and they're brown. Um, now, I've got something to tell you about this snake. Oh. This is the only North American snake whose binomial name is a double honorific. So, both the generic name and the specific name honour people. The specific name DKI is in honour of an American zoologist called James Ellsworth Decay, who was the one who collected the first specimen on Long Island, New York. This was long before it was considered a faux pas to name things after yourself when you found them. So, give him a, give him a break. And the generic names... Wait, I mean, some uh, did he describe it as well then? Uh, I don't know. More information than because I have. Because sometimes, yeah, sometimes things are collected by somebody, but they're described by somebody else. So they name it after the person that collected the thing. And that person didn't actually do the description. That's true. He may or may not have yeah. actually... Uh, well, let's find out. Sorry, throwing a spanner in the works in the first, like, 10 seconds, but... Let's see. Ah, oh, no. No. So, actually, Wikipedia is great for this kind of stuff. Uh, he actually collected <laughs> Quick, the snake, but he didn't, yeah, he didn't describe it. It was described by a gentleman by the name of John Edwards Holbrook. Um, so, yeah. He, there we go. I, yeah. No so I, at all. I shouldn't have started slating James Ellsworth to K when I did. Sorry, James. Um, so, yeah, he collected the first specimen that was then named after him. So that's actually pretty legit. Um, I mean, it's still naming something after someone, but, you know, they didn't know much better in the 1800s. And then um, the generic name Storaria honours somebody else, honours somebody else called uh, David Humphreys Storer, who was not only a keen writer on the topic of fish and reptiles, but he also was the dean of fa the Faculty of Medical Sciences at Harvard in the 1800s. So, uh, yeah, when he wasn't being a proper doctor, he was writing about reptiles and fish. Um, <laughs> a proper doctor. Yeah, proper, like, actual... Medical doctor, I think, is the term, right? Medical doctor, some would say. Proper doctor, you know, dealing with cadavers and such and whatnot. Uh, but, yeah, he... I mean, I don't think he wrote the paper. He did No, he definitely didn't. But um, Holbrook, who did write it, also named the generic name after him, I presume. And you can see why the people hmm. get things named after them. You know, it's been 130 years. Here we are talking about David Humphrey's Storer and uh, James Ellsworth Decay. Fair enough. But yeah, that's just an interesting little tidbit about the brown snake, which has taken up the first 10 minutes of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Superb. Yeah. What's our second species of snake? Uh, the red-bellied snake, which is uh, in the same genus as... Um, the brown snake it's storaria and this is a big one occipitomaculata which mm. occipito 
I mean, something like back of the head spots or ear spots or something like that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, yeah, they're cool. They're, they've got a really red belly. That's why they're called red-bellied snakes. It's one that makes sense. And in fairness, <laughs> in fairness... The, in, the insight. <laughs> yeah. You find a snake with a red belly? Wow. Is that a red-bellied snake? Red-bellied snake. Wow, you must be some kind of herpetologist with knowledge like that. Um, <laughs> and then the final one is the common garter snake, Thamnophis satalis. But they were, in this paper, they only used subadults of that because they grow to gargantuan sizes compared to red-bellied snakes and DK's brown snakes. And they wanted to have a comparison across the three species that was kind of justifiable. So they just used the diet of juvenile snakes. Um, and they're all from yeah. they're all from the family Natricidae, which is nice. Or the subfamily Natricinae, depending on how you feel about these things. But um, yeah, same as our humble barred grass snake here in the UK. Hmm. Yeah, good little snakes. Hmm. Um, I was going to mention why why they're using free species, and that you mentioned the cutoff for the garter snakes. So this whole paper is trying to get at this idea that if you have species in the same place that are trying to use the same resources or a similar shape or size, there's going to either be competition and and or exclusion. So you're going to see different snakes do different things to make up for there being multiple species there. They can't all eat the same thing very easily. That would be very that would be high competition, right? Yeah. Unless there was a lot of that resource. So there's there's lots of things at play and they're trying to unpick whether these snakes are all relying on the same resources, using different resources and what exactly those resources are. Precisely. And they're doing that yeah. in uh, northern Illinois. Perfect pronunciation. <laughs> Flawless. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's how it's pronounced. Anyway, um, I don't see why you'd write a word like that if it wasn't pronounced like that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like you say, the, they're looking at kind of like niche partitioning again, isn't it, in a way? Yeah, um, exactly that. Yeah. And they're not always found in the same place, but sometimes they are sympatric. And uh, yeah, they, would, they had three little study sites where they were doing this, um, which looked spectacular and had cool names. One was uh, Potawatomi Woods, which was... I just did a quick Google search of these places because I like to try and sort of situate myself when I'm reading a paper, imagine what was going on. Mm. Potawatomi, Potawatomi Woods is very beautiful. Lots of trees with red leaves. Um, Nachusa Grasslands, Nachusa Grasslands. That's apparently where the bison roam. There's lots of bison there. At least that's what Google would suggest. And uh, Goose Lake State Natural Area just looked like a really beautiful grassland. Um, so there's these three really nice habitats, which are kind of grass, prairie, wetlands, and uh, they're home to these three species of little snake in varying quantities. And uh, yeah, they basically just went around. They put a ton of cover boards down, just like big wooden boards, and then they'd walk around lifting those up. And if there were snakes underneath, they'd grab them, give them a little squeeze. When they sicked up their lunch, yep. they'd work out what it was. Give it a little pat, pat, pat with the paper towel, dry it out, work out what species it is they've puked up, weigh it. And uh, from that, they were getting an idea of um, both what the diet consisted of and how much they were actually eating. And they collected tons um, and tons of prey from quite a lot of snakes, didn't they? Yeah, and critically, like how big the snake is and the species of snake. So you have that ability to compare 
like bigger snakes are going to be eating different stuff from smaller snakes, perhaps. So it's these multiple, multiple sort of uh, explanatory variables they're grabbing as well. Yeah. Where are the snakes? What snakes are also there? How big is snake? Yeah. And um, yeah, the majority of what they caught, what they found the snakes to be eating was actually um, earthworms. Loads and loads of worms. Mm. Oh boy. Which uh, makes a lot of sense if you're Do a Do we snake. have a number on how many worms they found? A number. Uh, so I think it was... 187. It's a lot of worms. It's a lot of worms. Yeah. And what's interesting about these worms is that they are not American worms. They, no. They're European worms. There are worms. I recognize these worms. I Googled them and I was like, hey, worm. What are you saying? I recognize you. You're worm. You're the same worm I get in the garden. And uh, yeah, they're from two genera, Lumbricus and Opor- Aporectodea. That's the thing with worms. There's so many worms, you have to start giving them stupid names. Um, <laughs> we ran out of all the sensible names. <laughs> yeah, you ran out of words that are actually pronounceable. <laughs> but yet their common names are br- beautifully simple. Grey garden slugs and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, that's a slug. I mean, that's not a worm. But... <laughs> Do you know what a worm is? <laughs> yeah, they're, they're long, they're slimy. <laughs> Just yeah, they're, pr- they're pretty much just slugs without the like sticky bit. Well, they're slugs, but the underneath is all the way round. Uh, are you sure it's not the top that's all the way around? <laughs> Good question. Yeah, no, it might be. Um, but yeah, apparently you can tell if an earthworm is a juvenile because they lack a clitellum. Mm. <laughs> cool. Um. <laughs> <laughs> what what a, what a great piece of information. Yeah. Like, I, that... I have absolutely no point of reference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's the little, um, I think it's the little sort of uh, sleeve that goes around them. You know, oh, the like little segment. Bit. Yeah, I think so. I think that's like. The, let me see. I'm gonna Google it. Pretty frightened of pressing enter. Yeah, the clitellum is a thick, subtle-like ring found in the epidermis of the worm. Well, there you go. Oh, to form a cocoon for its eggs, the clitellum secretes a viscous fluid. Okay, so it's to do Excellent. with reproduction. That's quite nice. Presumably, though, the males and females both have it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a way to tell if they're adults. But there you go. That's why worms have that thing. Now we know. I have no idea how worms reproduce. So, I mean, I have have zero information here. (laughs) I haven't got a clue. I actually did some Googling on Google Scholar to try and find out. Because obviously these worms are non-native. Whether or not they've been having an effect. And it doesn't seem to be that anyone's written anything about it at all. So... I'm not really a massive surprise mm. that worms are a bit mysterious, um, at least in terms of yeah, invasive worms. Underground animals, man. Underground animals that aren't particularly cute. You're going to have a tough time finding research on them. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah. they Hairy land mammal, perfect. Yeah, this is it. But, I mean, like, moles are the exception. People, we know loads about moles because... Um, well, so- we know loads about some moles. Not those, like, mysterious golden moles that don't have eyes. What do they do with their time? I don't know. They can't watch stuff because they haven't got eyes. Yeah. They just sort of <laughs> snuffle about, Bundle I guess. About. Yeah. yeah. Snuffle on, brother. Um, <laughs> so, 
So, basically, going back to this paper, they're catching all these worms and slugs, grey garden slugs, which are also European. All these are European pests that these um, snakes are mostly eating. And, uh, yeah, from this information, they they kind of, well, they did some uh, some stats and things on whether or not the different species of snakes had different um, diet preferences and whether or not that changed over the course of the snake's lifespan. Yeah, diet, dietary breadth, the sort of diversity of things they're eating and the mix between different types of stuff they're eating. Yeah. Um, but to be honest, a lot of that stuff wasn't massively conclusive, despite their, what I thought was quite an impressive sample size. Um, they, they kind of concluded with the fact that the variations of diet within species may actually just reflect differences in the individual sites and how many different species of worm or slug there are and their availability in that area. So it could just be that they're mm. eating things based around what they can find and that they are kind of just generally keen on eating things which are slimy and elongate. Accessible and can't flee very easily. No, but there was crazy things like one uh, adult female DK's brown snake regurgitated 15 slugs. Yeah, I mean, there must have just been like a little school group of slugs going somewhere <laughs> and the snake rolled up and just chomped them down like Pac-Man. Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, I have seen slugs um, congregating under my refugia where I look for snakes. Sometimes you yeah. flip one over and yeah. you just get like literally about 10 slugs. But I don't know if I've ever seen 15, so that snake must have been... Uh, yeah, put in a serious shift. Couple of yeah. cover boards. Couple of cover boards. Yeah. That's the thing. I wonder how. I wonder if the cover boards themselves actually they must attract invertebrates. So it's probably a win-win for the snakes being under there. Yeah, I mean, what you'd have to do. Oh, it's very difficult to unpick in that case because you might be modifying the prey availability by your trapping method. Because essentially, the slugs and stuff could be acting as bait in your cover um, objects. So. You definitely have to try and quantify the available prey in these areas, but you'd also have to like quantify how the coverboard, what's like the coverboard prey differed from the overall prey, and see if the snakes were more associated to the coverboard prey than the overall prey. You still couldn't work out whether it was the coverboards doing that or that was actual legitimate snake preference without having a site without cover boards. But then you couldn't catch any snakes, so it'd be difficult to do. It's a classic cover board catch-22. Yeah. Mm. But yeah, no, good to think about these things. Cool. So basically, the take-home message of this paper is these little snakes, mostly invertebrates, um, they're eating lots and lots of invasive invertebrates, and there is this kind of possibility they allude to that Abundant non-native prey can actually remove competitive interactions and promote coexistence between species. Now, there's not enough evidence to suggest that, definitely, but it's a cool idea, which is worth having a look at. Because we've had other instances on the podcast where there's been species, like those, um, what were they called? Uh, the musk turtles that were just eating tons and tons of invasive clams. Yes. Um Yes. Yeah, so it could be that these invasive species are actually, uh, in one regard, kind of making life easier for native species. I mean, I'm sure there's going to be changes to the 
behavior of soil if new new worm species coming in and i don't know what it is that slugs actually are for but whatever they do they might be changing things <laughs> um whatever they do what do slugs do what do they i mean they're, they're just what they're detritivores. what don't they do do they just eat leaves and stuff what are they doing yeah they're, they're, they're like soil making creatures aren't they yeah i thought they were as well yeah they yeah. eat leaves well, they eat leaves don't they because they're they're agricultural pests, so I guess they're just turning... And and they feed snakes. They do feed snakes, yeah. And chickens. Chickens go crazy for slugs. Chickens love a good slug. Mm, yeah. Mm. Discovered that recently. It was quite a ghastly experience. Oh my gosh, chickens eating anything that's alive is a brutal thing to behold. <laughs> yeah, they just go... It's like they just completely changed gear. I've never seen it before. It was... Yeah, they go from quiet pecking on some corn to ripping animals asunder it's, it's incredible <laughs> yeah. yeah wow I'm, yeah I'm glad we could share that trauma um, yeah mm. um, cool <laughs> so yeah I think three cool little snake species fun fun ones which is your favourite of the three um, I'm leaning towards red bellied are you yeah I can see why you just like red bellies don't you yeah I mean come on Pretty damn good. Pretty special red belly. I quite like uh, just the brown snakes. I find them to be unassuming and understated. And um, yeah, I'd like to see one. And charming. Yeah, they kind of remind me of um, the Piraeus, the slugging snakes from... um, Mm, They have that same kind of head shape, but like less pronounced. Sort of an endearing, quizzical look on the face. But that's just me. Maybe, well, they're probably quite curious. Yeah. Quite inquisitive. I feel like you don't eat 15 slugs in a night without being at least a little bit inquisitive. Hmm. Did we mention that there was... So you sort of said that the invasive species may be relaxing the competition. There was... I mean, I think it's worth mentioning that the garter snakes seem to be a little bit separate in terms of their dietary niche compared to the others, right? Yeah, they did. They ate a little bit more Like, they were eating more amphibians and fewer slugs. Yeah, they were eating boreal chorus frogs, weren't they? Yeah. So there was there was some separation there. The, the two other species, a lot of overlap, but also the second species, the, um, uh, the red bellies, they didn't actually get very many individuals compared to the other two, so that's a little bit of a weaker inference. But... Um, there was some separation there, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So perhaps relaxed, but still sort of present. Yeah, they're definitely um, they're definitely going through life doing slightly different things. Hmm. Which is what you'd which what yeah. you'd expect because there'd be no point if they were identical. Yes, I sp- mm, It would be pretty pointless because one would have an advantage in some way that would push a slightly different lifestyle. Yeah, I suppose unless it really is that easy to go around eating slugs, in which case you could have like a slightly less efficient slug eater and it still survives. And it doesn't have any impact. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it would be really curious. One thing they said, like, if you could find an area where these three species are interacting and there isn't this incursion of invasive invertebrates, it'd be really interesting to see what they were eating before this came along. Because it's... The worms and slugs are so ridiculously overrepresented in the diet, it's... Almost, I mean, it's not exclusively, but it's like, you know, it's a good sort of 80%, 90%. 
Yeah, and they were also saying that these the sort of breadth that they've reported here is one of the the slimmer dietary breadths that snake species have found to have. Like usually things are eating a great a lot more uh, diverse set of things than what they've recorded, so it does seem quite quite targeted. Mm. But that might just be because they're so easy to eat. Yeah. Snakes do love eating things that are tube-shaped. It is the easiest way to go. Yep, just slips on down. Mm -hmm. Well, so that's three species in northern Illinois. I do know how to pronounce it. It's all a big joke. And uh, I think we should move on. And if if you've got a lot of slugs and snails in your garden... Get yourself a... Encouraging some snakes. Yeah, get yourself. They'll help you out. DK's brown snake. It'll take out 15 slugs in one day. Snakes, friends of gardeners. They say that about... um, Slowworms, don't they, here in the UK? The legless lizards. Mm. They're um, actually really good at pest control. And that might... I mean, they're always in allotments and stuff like that, so... Makes sense. Eating slugs and worms, etc. But then, to be fair, what could a slowworm eat if it wasn't a slug or a worm? I don't know. Maybe a woodlouse? Maybe a woodlouse. That's about it. That's pretty much all they've got going for them. They can... (laughs) They can eat very slow-moving insects. Yeah. And insects without legs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else will just get away from them. Yeah, they're not quick. So, should we get on to the second paper? Yes. <laughs> yes, second paper is by Wilson and Wynn. Uh, evaluating the functional importance of a secretive species, or of secretive species, sorry. A case study of aquatic snake predators in isolated wetlands. Uh, published, when was it? 2015, in the Journal of Zoology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is a cool one. Um, this is a cool yeah, one. Yeah, we've been talking about what all snakes eat, but now we have why we should care about that prey choice and why it matters. Um, so they're talking about functional importance and that just is a term which is used to describe the role the animal is actually playing in an environment so we're talking about worms worms are important because they break down leaf litter like we said they're kind of detritivores they're turning leaves that have fallen on the ground into soil which is really useful because plants love soil that is a fundamental element of any healthy ecosystem. It must be happening for there to be an ecosystem down the road. But uh, it's a little bit more difficult to immediately see, we kind of alluded to this in the intro, why snakes are relevant to the environment and what their functional importance is in the ecosystems they inhabit. So uh, this paper is investigating just that for water snakes. What is their functional importance what are they doing in the environment and uh, kind of justifying their existence, really? Sort of, yeah. It's, I mean, it's hard for people to quantify snakes' role in the ecosystem because they're so damn sneaky. Yeah. It's hard to find snakes. You know, infrequent observations, okay, it's fine. You might see a snake eat a particular type of animal or something, but that doesn't really speak to how frequently that happened. That doesn't I mean, we barely know how many snakes there are in a lot of ecosystems, but it takes a lot of effort to be confident in your um, estimations. Yes. So there's a lot of uncertainty there. And that uncertainty... And these guys are going full bore into solving it. Yeah. 
And that uncertainty has actually led to some authors suggesting that snakes don't really have any point at all. So they have a really funny quote in this paper from... It comes up so much, this quote. Yeah. Like, so much. (laughs) Every paper about, like, taxonomic bias against snakes or snakes aren't important either starts with this quote or ends on this quote. I... I love it though. I think it's hilarious. So this is from... I, I kind of like it too, but... It's, I've never... It's, yeah, it's called The Golden Guide to Reptiles and Amphibians. And in this book, Zim and Smith, in 1953, so we're going back a little while, but they said, as a group, reptiles are neither good nor bad, but are interesting and unusual, although of minor importance. If they should all disappear, it would not make much difference one way or the other. So, so this is the kind of bad press. <laughs> These reptiles are pointless. Yeah, they're interesting, but only as like a curiosity. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine. Outrageous, <laughs> I say. Outrageous. Yeah. So Zim and Smith will be keeping you in mind as we discuss this paper, and we'll come back to you at the end. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we got a secretive species. They're hard to study. It's going to take a lot of effort. Yes. Well, but. Thankfully, there are ways of dealing with this. There are. These guys do a good job of picking a snake species that actually occur in quite high numbers and are relatively easy to capture. That is a good starting point. I think some snake species, this sort of study might just be impossible if they exist at low densities. Any others? I mean, there's got to be very few which are at this high density. It's madness. It's madness how many snakes Mm. there are in this area. So they've they've got two species... Um, well, first of all, where are we? We're in Ellington Bay, which is an isolated Carolina Bay freshwater wetland. Um, in the US of A. Yeah, so still in America. And this wetland has no fish, no crayfish, and no giant salamanders. That's not to say there aren't small. And no joy. No joy, yeah. How can there be no fish and no crayfish? How can there be no fish? Lots of wetlands. It's weird, isn't Does it? Does it dry out? Is it, a, it must be ephemeral to have no fish. Yeah, I, think I guess. They just say somewhere. And no crayfish. Like, crayfish are really tough, aren't they? Crayfish are unstoppable. They're Especially s- those invasive crayfish that consume everything yeah. and then consume each other. Crayfish have their skeletons on the outside of their body. How do you defeat something you like that? You can't. That's the thing about it. It's just, they're like, armed, bulletproof. Um, but the good thing about the fact that there are none of these other cool animals is that it does make quite a simple food web when you draw it out. So... Basically, the snakes are eating the delicious little amphibians that are existing in this wetland. And um, as you said, they are the snakes are in high numbers. So there's two species of snake that dominate this wetland. The banded water snake, Nerodia fasciata, and the black swab snake, Seminatrix <laughs> pagaea. Uh, banded water snakes are about a meter long, and the black swamp snakes are about half the size. Um... We talked about Nerodia fasciata before. They're banded. They've got sort of brown and rusty bands. Sometimes they're a bit green. And the old black swamp. And they've got funny eyes. Yeah, they have. They've got funny eyes on top of the head. And uh, the black swampers, they're jet black on top uh, with very striking red bellies, which I'm sure, Ben, mm. you really appreciate. I do, I do enjoy the uh, red belly of the black swamp snake. Yeah. There's something real special about that contrast. No, no one's going to criticise that snake. Be like, eh, if you could could have a more garish belly. If you did, if someone did criticise that snake, you knew you'd, you'd have to know that it was indicative of some underlying issue with them. And really, 
It'd be your responsibility to ask if they were okay. And the only way to make it up to those poor little snakes would be to do an episode of some sort of podcast dedicated entirely to them. Yeah. It'd be, it's the only way. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the way they sampled this wetland was they had close to 500 little minnow traps, so kind of miniature crab pots, and they put them all over this Ellington Bay. Could you... What, what is a minnow trap? I didn't look this up, and I should have looked it up. I'm presuming it's like a, a single-level like funnel trap. Basically. With a funnel yeah. and an end, and when thing goes in, it can't get back out because it's at the edges. That's... And not the, the, like the funnel entrance is dead centre of this like netted box. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's just a little mini crab pot. But um, obviously, in this case, they must have been floating in the water. They use the same method to catch uh, great crested newts, basically. Mm, okay, so it's just standard funnel trap, yeah. aquatic funnel trap, yeah. basically. Yeah, but they don't even need to use bait because animals are curious and they just go in there and then they can't get out. Hmm. Curious or, nice. curious or foolish, it's always a fine line. Um, well, who says they're not studying us? Oh, wow, yeah, wow, gosh. <laughs> really good one that made me think um, <laughs> <laughs> imagine going through that ordeal just to get a tiny bit of data on humankind uh, we go through great ordeal to get tiny bits of imperfect data on swamp snakes true that yeah like putting out 400 500 plastic minnow traps yeah it's true so um, yeah what they did prior to doing this because this is another dietary study so they did a study in the lab where they fed these snakes um they actually only did the lab study on the uh red-bellied snakes Nerodia. yeah oh no sorry no yeah not red red bellies the water snakes oh, what i'm talking about yeah yep. the water snakes because um the black swamp snakes they they're a bit too shy they don't really like eating in captivity so they had some captive um water snakes and they were just feeding them baby salamanders um sort of pre-metamorphosing salamander young and what they were doing is measuring say you feed it 100 grams of baby salamander how much growth in mass does that convert to in a snake and um, once they had that kind of body mass conversion it allowed them to estimate based on the snake's size and weight how much food they'd eaten in their lives and therefore you know, and in and in shorter periods of time as well. So, kind of get an image of how yeah, be- much between recaptures as well. Yeah. So how much? So they prey are these snakes eating over what time period as a collective? Yeah. So they're they're out in the field, catch a snake. Okay, measure, mark the snake, let it go. Okay, capture it a year later. Same snake. It's got the identifiable mark on it. Remeasure it. Okay, it's changed by this much. We know that growth of this much or a mass change of this increase equates to X number of little amphibians in the lab. Therefore, this snake must have eaten X amount of amphibians while in the wild. Exactly. And yeah, uh, yeah. yeah they came up with some pretty amazing figures on this. Um, well, before even that, I mean, they caught an incredible number of snakes. They had a six, 68 days of having their traps out and about. And they managed to catch 528 individual water snakes. 
and 495 individual seminatrix, which is just, I mean, they're crazy numbers. Um, um, yeah, how many captures? 1,500 Nerodia captures and 1,000 sort of 200 plus of seminatrix. That is so many snakes coming back and forth, getting recaptured and all stuff like that. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Was it across two two years, was this? Three years? Yeah, I think they did it over two years. 2013 to 15, yeah. I think. Um, what? No, five to oh, six. Yeah, 2005 and 2006. One year. So, yeah, that's probably the most captures I've ever seen in a paper about snakes. It's got to be up there. It's got to be up there, yeah. Yeah, it's just... It's just bonkers, and um, and what's what's cool? I mean, the the number of recaptures actually gives you a better estimate of how many there are. Okay, you caught four five hundred twenty twenty eight. Not all of those are adults, for one thing, and because you're measuring a population over time, some are dying, some are giving birth. You know, there, there is shift, but they're sort of suggesting that there's. 220 to 270 Nerodia and 214 to 322 Seminatrix over what's that sort of area we were talking here? Um, How big was their study area? There's 5.1 hectares. Yeah, they were they were saying they reckoned there was about 171 snakes per hectare. Yeah, which is a hell of a lot. That's pretty. That's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah. What is it? Well, it feels pretty what good. What is a hectare? I mean, maybe that's... Is a hectare about it's a football It's 100 metres by 100 metres. So what can we convert So it's 10,000 metres squared. What's... What, what? Well, I mean, everybody knows how far 100 metres is. Do they? Yeah, they probably do, actually. Well, that's how far how far people sprint. <laughs> in the 100 metres? Yeah, in the 100 <laughs> metres. <laughs> it's half as much as they sprint in the 200 metres. It's mental to think that there's going to be... That 171 yeah, snakes so you, in a hundred meter square. Anywhere you go, you're going to bump into a snake or two if you walk a meter. Well, no, this is it. That's exactly it. You wouldn't. That's what's so annoying with studying snakes is you don't bump into them. Mm. You only bump into like 0.01% of them. Yeah. So it's really hard to estimate how many there are because you're only getting this tiny little snapshot. It's like looking through a keyhole. It, I must say... It's infuriating. Of all, of all species of snake, it does seem to me that um, water snakes are the ones found in highest abundance in small areas I, that I've seen. That like, or maybe, maybe. Maybe it's because they're the ones that they can But how many density things have you... Yeah. Yeah. How many things have you seen of low density snake species actually achieving good abundance estimates? I remember there's that that study we talked about. I don't know if we did it on the podcast or not. Um, the grass snake study on Jersey. Oh yeah. We did. And we how did. they sort of weren't happy with their abundance estimates at the end of the day because the um, the uncertainty was so big. Yeah. Because they needed so much effort, and they were basically saying for abundance, the amount of effort you need to do probably isn't uh, viable for the organizations that want to be monitoring grass snakes there. And that was Jersey. I mean, that's a very contained population. And grass snakes too. I mean, grass snakes are pretty... I feel like you see grass snakes more frequently than you do some other types of snake. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. But... I suppose, again, that's sort of similar environment where it's sort of mushy and wet and there's going to be layers of grass. High prey. Yeah. 
Lots of places yeah. to hide. But I think perhaps, yeah, I think what's probably given me a slightly skewed perception of water snake abundance is like, I, they're the only snakes I've seen in groups. Yeah, you can see them all writhing around in the bottom of a hole or something, can't yeah, you? Yeah, and you sometimes see them like... You can imagine them the in shore. large quantities. Yeah. If you saw like uh, that sort of situation with a whole bunch of them, but they were all like um, cobras or something... You'd be like, what the hell's going on here? Yeah. Why, why is there this congregation of cobras by the side of this river? Yeah. It would be weird. It would be like a, yeah, it'd be like a weird natural event. Mm. Yeah. It'd be deeply unsettling. <laughs> Maybe you'd certainly, it'd make you think twice. Yeah. So all of these snakes at this really high density are consuming over 37 kilograms per hectare of amphibians every year which is a lot to put that in context voles being eaten by both mammalian and avian predators in sweden are 1.37 kilograms per hectare which isn't very much so that's like one thirtieth um and Fish and squid consumption by whales in the Georges Bank of the Northwest Atlantic is... Oh, man. They actually didn't give a figure, but they just said it approaches it. I should I started that sentence as if I was going to finish it with a, a number. <laughs> with a nice number I don't have to a nice number it. for you. Um, Damn. No, what it is, um, basically, whales. You can imagine whales, right? That You'd think they'd be eating a lot of stuff. Um mm. Well, it's a, you know, it's not the hugest country, but oh, you do need to feed a lot geez. of people. <laughs> oh, here we go. Is there a number in the paper? I just haven't... Approach. I haven't written Approach it down. rates of fish and squid consumption by cetaceans, which is between 48 and 57 kilograms per hectare. So mm. they're eating nearly as much as whales, as in... Per hectare. Yeah per hectare but I mean obviously it's a different environment it's not the ocean and uh, the whales are going to be doing that over a much bigger area but just the fact that these little water snakes in the little concentrated area that they are found in are managing to consume per hectare a number even close to what whales can accomplish really puts mm. their kind of um, nutrient transfer role into quite stark perspective yeah, do you want some? Do you want some fun with the amount of energy? Uh, I did. So it's eight hundred sixty-six thousand one hundred eighty-six kilojoules, and I have some. I have some equivalencies. Say again, yeah? how many kilojoules? Eight hundred sixty-six thousand one hundred eighty-six. Is that the total across the whole area? For the entire year, across the entire area, it was that many kilojoules. Okay, go on then. Which is. The equivalent of boiling 2,886 kettles. Wow. Or, if you don't want to boil a bunch of kettles, it's the same as running 1,040 watt light bulbs for 240 hours. Or 10 days. Wow. So I went to... Or, <laughs> if you want to convert it into calories, we're talking 1,334 eggs. Wow. That's cool. Or even better than that, 
even better than that because for some reason remember the episode ages and ages ago we Wait, were talking I've got about butter. those lizards i've got butter oh you've mine. got butter as well what's, what's your estimate for sticks of butter i didn't do sticks of butter i did it per hectare so per hectare oh per, fair play. per hectare it's close to five kilograms of butter five kilograms i've got 255 sticks of butter <laughs> Which, well, I think a stick is like 150 grams or something like that. So that makes sense. Yeah, just about. Yeah. That's madness. Yeah, I think that tallies up. That's a lot of butter. Wow. It's crazy. That's hilarious that you remembered butter as well. That was the uh, Gila Monsters, <laughs> wasn't it? They were surviving on like it was, the it was the Gila of Monsters. 50 grams of butter in a year or something ridiculous. Yeah. Just... Whereas these snakes, they don't even come close. No. They got to eat a lot of butter. <laughs> they have actually, although yeah, how many snakes? Oh, we're yeah, but basically that is a staggering amount how many of calories. Sna- mm. It's difficult. Yeah, it would be difficult to then do that per snake, going backwards in this way. You'd have to, if you did it from the lab study numbers straight away, then you could then you could work it out. Yeah. Um. But I think reverse engineering the butter backwards would be a bad idea. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's like abstracting it and then de-abstracting it when you could just transfer it. Yeah. But um, I think what that what those incredible figures just go to show is that um, these snakes are quite an important contributor to taking nutrients and putting them into the wetland, especially because a lot of the frogs that they're eating are actually coming from areas surrounding the wetland obviously frogs come back Mm. come back to the wetland to breed same not just for frogs but for salamanders and stuff and um what that means is that they're they're, they themselves are quite an important contributor to gaining nutrients from the surrounding area and sequestering it within the wetland system so they're probably largely responsible for the productivity of a wetland system when you look at it in those terms um well certainly it's certainly a significant Aspect. I mean, you can't have those numbers without being like, okay, if you remove the snakes, nothing's going to happen. But you also don't know the sort of relative importance of other predators in this system. But I think I think it's pretty safe to say that they're important. Yeah. So I think we can probably safely say to Zim and Smith that actually, if you did remove them, something would happen. It would make a difference one way or another. And so... I think water snakes should be allowed to continue to exist. I would, I yeah, I support the continued existence of water snakes. Yeah, me too, in a big way. I think it's a good thing. I think it's, yeah, I think it's important for the wetlands. Did, did you see the, um, on, on just sort of on that note, it's like, okay, water snakes are important, so what does that mean? We should care, okay. Did you look at any of their sort of further examples of other snakes showing sort of big impacts in areas um no i didn't go, i didn't delve into any of the papers okay so just because everybody knows about the guam situation with brown tree snakes decimating stuff over there also the burmese pythons in florida too so these sorts of okay snakes can't have a regulatory impact on native species in their ecosystems i think it's quite strongly countered by how once they're introduced to a place, they can have very big impacts on native species there. So it makes a lot of sense when you're looking at native species in a native setup that they're also having some sort of important functional role. It's just in a better equilibrium than what you'd expect with invasive species. Yeah? Yeah. 
And the only sort of point that I wanted to end on was this this Brooks et al. citation they bring up. Brooks et al. 20, uh, 2007, that are looking at um, water snake harvest in Cambodia. And they were saying that people are harvesting nearly 7 million snakes every year from one lake. What? Yeah. Seven million? How big's the lake? It. They do say it's a large lake. Oh, a large lake. Oh, they, can, no, it's a large lake. It's probably got seven million snakes a year to pull out of there. That's bonkers. Well, this is, this is the other aspect of the study, is they're saying that recently, in the past five years, uh, catches have declined 75% and up, pretty much. 74 to 84% in the past five-year period. So... Whoa, there were loads of snakes in this lake. Whoa, they seem to have been hideously overexploited in a very short time period. It's pretty nuts. So, uh, so that was a paper from 2007. Mm. So the situation has had yeah. another 13, 12, 13 years to develop. Yeah, I'm just looking at the size of the lake for you. It's on the Mekong, uh, 2,500 kilometers squared. What? But then it increases to 10,000 slash 16,000 kilometers squared when it floods. Blimey, that's a that is So this a big is a lake. huge yeah. area. Um, but still, that's a huge number of snakes. Wow. And guess guess what they're being harvested for? Um, the primary reason for harvest. I don't know. Go on. I would assume food, but it doesn't sound like it's going to be food. Yeah, it is food. Oh, that's a But relief. not for humans. Oh. What? It's crocodile, it's crocodile food. What? What, to feed farmed crocodiles? Presumably. Yeah, the top, the top two reasons, crocodile food and their skins. Wow. Yeah, I had absolutely no idea. I mean, the numbers are insane. The scale is insane. The reason why they're being pulled out also seems sort of bonkers. Yeah, well, I guess farming a tertiary consumer, like a crocodile. Is tricky. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I just never thought about that I just assumed they I mean number one getting... I didn't even know that crocodile farming was such a big deal that you'd need that quantity of snakes but I suppose that one crocodile probably eats a lot of snake meat yeah yeah blimey that's fascinating yeah and then you sort of bring in the you know bring in this sort of Wilson and Wynn paper and they're sort of saying okay what sort of impact is that having having on the ecosystem it's you can't do these things in isolation if you re- removed 75% of your snakes like flipping heck mm, there's going to be a huge release on the predation pressure of so many animals yeah I hope someone's studying that big lake I hope so too certainly that was a that was a neat neat paper yeah testament to their abundance Brooks et al estimated that 6.9 million of these snakes are harvested annually that is just shocking yeah see that's not even the ones that there are like they're the ones that are harvested yeah 
but I mean, it is a massive area. I mean, 2,500 kilometers squared is huge. What is that? That's, uh, what do you times it by to turn it into hectares? 100, I think it is. Uh, how many, how many kilometers squared did you say the lake was? Yeah, you times it by 100 to turn it into hectares. So 2,500, add two zeros, turns that into, what, 2.5 million? Or 250,000? You're on your own, mate. I'm I'm looking up things that might be that size. 250,000 hectares. So, I mean, that is a monstrous area compared to the uh, study we're discussing here. How many kilometers squared was it? 2,500. Okay. And that's when it's not flooding. When it's flooded? 10,000, did you say? No, when it's not flooded. Yeah. 10,000 when it's flooded. That's half the size of Wales. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's a big lake. Yeah, that's a big lake. That's a big floodplain area. Yeah. You reckon... I wonder how many snakes there are in half of Wales. Not that many. No. Well, it depends north or south half. <laughs> well, a little bit more diversity in the north. north half. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Cool. Crazy numbers. Cool. Crazy numbers. We should go to that lake. We should do a pilgrimage to that lake. The great water snake pilgrimage. Next time I come and see Cambodia. you in Thailand, we'll go to that lake. We'll pop over. Yeah. See how many we can capture. I reckon 10 mil. Easy. <laughs> yeah, put out nah. put out some fish traps. Just job done. <laughs> on a night, we could do a cool foul. Yeah. Well, dude, I mean, you probably could. Probably. With a, with a decent number of traps. Yeah. You would have to. to... They probably all just like charge into the traps that no more can fit in. <laughs> oh, dear. Imagine that. Oh, chaos. Well, I think that pretty much summarises the importance of water snakes. Yes. Important. Yes, I think that does some justice. Yeah. I think that's <laughs> driven that point home. <laughs> so, um, yeah, water snakes. The real trick is how, how do we harness them to, uh, to boil all those kettles? Well, you just have to burn them really efficiently. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Okay, I regret bringing it up. That's horrible. No, you couldn't because they probably expelled most of those um, sweet, sweet energy calories. Mm, through wiggling around. Mm, yeah. So uh, I think it's time for the species of the bi-week, isn't it?
Yeah, species of bi-week. So, uh, it's not a water snake, unfortunately, because we couldn't find one that's been recently described. Um, but it is this paper. It is by Yanez Munoz, Ventimilla Yanez, Batalas, and Cineros Heredia in 2019, a new giant pristamantis from the Paramos of the Podocarpus National Park, southern Ecuador. Yeah, so mm. it's a new species of frog of the genus Pristamantis, and uh, yeah. This lovely, chubby frog. Coming from Podocarpus National Park, southern Ecuador. Yeah. 50 millimetres in length. <laughs> Unless it's a male and it's a wee bit smaller, like 40 to 35. Yeah. So not 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 a monster, but pretty good. No. Pretty it, respectable. It's a big frog though, isn't it? Like really, compared to other frogs. If you think about all the frogs, it's probably... Upper middle. In the grand scheme of frogs, yeah. Mm. And yeah. it's got this thick, glandular skin. Very yeah, weird. Yeah, it looks all lumpy. Yeah, it looks... It's like, like a, it's like a really muscly frog. Yeah, it looks... Like a bodybuilder frog. Yeah, it looks weird. Um, horrendous warts all over the body. Horrendous. <laughs> and uh, what they refer to in the paper as prominent glandular patches on the head and legs, which are the... Mm. Which is what gives it that kind of muscular appearance. Um, what do those glands do? Yeah. It, Who can say? Probably produce some noxious toxin. Probably. Maybe it's all just for show. Could be. I mean, they do look big and scary. If I was another frog, I'd probably leave it. <laughs> oh, gosh. Here comes those weird lumpy frogs. Yeah. Everybody back in, back in the tree roots. Go on. <laughs> yeah. Under the rocks. <laughs> the thing is... It's so lumpy and warty that those features are actually the easiest way to quickly differentiate it from other members of the genus. It's mm. it's the lumpy, warty one. Um, comes in a variety of colours. It can be dark brown, chocolate brown, or orange brown. So as long as you like brown, this is a frog for you. You'll be happy. Yeah. <laughs> um, a variety of browns. Yeah. and um, uh, It's like a it? 1970s rover. <laughs> what's it called? It's called... Um, Pristamantis uh, Andy and Jai Gigas and Andy Andy Gigas where is it Andy O'Gigas Pristamantis Andy O'Gigas which is quite a good name um, it comes from the Latin adjective Andinus which means it pertains to the Andes and the noun Gigas, which means giant, because it's big and stout, and it's from the high Andes. So, yeah, nice, sensible name. Big yeah. fan of that. Um, it's got sort of textury skin too. Did we say that? Like, like one of those textured lino floors. Yeah, yeah, very much like that. Um, yeah, they're just they're just non 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 slip skin. Non slip skin. They're just funny and endearing, aren't they? They just yeah. They're just sort of uh, they look like a caricature of a frog, just like big and chubby. Um, the male's cool 
at night. They can take quite cold temperatures as well. They were active at between 6 and 10 degrees Celsius. I always forget that these high altitude places, because this is a frog which is found above 3,000 meters. Um, yeah. It gets really cold yeah. in these like cloud forests. So yeah, 6 degrees. That's, I mean, I wouldn't want to be out in 6 degrees. Not especially. Not without a jumper. No. And these frogs don't have jumpers. No. They're just... Maybe that's why they're so lumpy. It could be. Um, and yeah, they they like areas with bamboo and they sit and cool in the bamboo of an evening. Hey, and some good news. Oh, yeah? Um, they say that, okay, they should be data deficient. Yep, fair enough. Not much is known. They're newly described. But what's cool is the location is actually in a national park. Yeah. So they are in a protected area right now so it's not like the ones we do every now and again where it's like oh we found this great frog it's right in front of this digger it's these guys are at least got a fighting chance in an area with low human impact yeah yeah and um which is nice yeah their range is pretty restricted so far but they don't rule out finding them in other places they say this national park has areas which haven't really been explored that well so it's entirely feasible that they are a little bit more widespread than we currently realize Hmm. Yeah, so, yeah. and this was a species, it was actually discovered during field work to assess the impacts of climate change on biodiversity in the area. So it was kind of a happy accident they just found this frog while doing some other stuff. I did look to see if we could talk about that research because it has been published, but unfortunately, the stuff on climate change and biodiversity ended up in a book, and the book is Spanish. So, dual reasons why I haven't read it. <laughs> but thankfully, it led to the oh, well. discovery of an entertaining creature. So, happy days. Hmm. Excellent. Hmm. So, uh, that's our species of the bye week. Pristamantis and Andiogigus. Andiogigus. Struggling with that one. Um, yeah, we wanted to have a call to play, but we didn't, couldn't get one. If you publish a species <laughs> of amphibian, please, if it makes a noise, make it a free downloadable MP3 and we'll play it on our podcast. That's a promise. <laughs> It's such a specific reason. <laughs> but really, it's all part of the drive towards open data and uh, open publishing. Yeah. So really, there's, there's no... It's the tip of an open publishing iceberg. Yep. And that iceberg is delicious. Hmm. So, any other business? I have a note that um, from Richard Southworth via Facebook saying that the movie I was failing to remember the correct name was Fantastic Voyage. That was a long time ago now. <laughs> it was a long time ago but I think I was saying Fantastic Journey Magnificent Adventure. Yeah. You know it was just throwing out a load of nonsense. Yeah. Fantastic Voyage is the one. It was all pertaining to the name of that paper where the um, Asian toad ate the uh, blind, snake. blind snake. Yeah. The old uh, Brahmini blind yeah. snake. And Marco O'Shea's yeah. paper was entitled A Fantastic Voyage. That's why we got onto it. That's the one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Um, okay, so we've got a new Patreon we have to thank. Sebastian Huffer. Thank you very much. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, big up. Um, Apol ap apologies for the delay in podcasting. Yes. Uh, there won't be any more delays for a while now, which is good. So we also had a video sent to us by Rebecca on Facebook, which she produced herself, uh, or directed, I should say about a Tasmanian lady called Veronica Ross, who is a really skilled snake handler, despite having acquired a um, brain injury. So this is quite a 
cool YouTube video about a lady who's just like mad passionate about snakes and manages to um, be like a snake rescuer type character uh, nice. despite having suffered a brain injury it's really cool really cool video so I'll share that on the Facebook page and on Twitter shortly after this so everyone can have a watch some cool snakes feature yeah snakes need all the friends they can get yeah some really cool venomous snakes in that video too so yeah get your fix sweet um what else ah oh yeah so um Seb got in touch with us on Facebook I think it was and apparently we were well he was listening to episode 53 where we talked about blood excretion as a defense in horned lizards um Oh yeah, yeah. Apparently, the Tropidophis do it as well, which are snakes. So West Ooh. Indian wood snakes. Interesting. Very interesting. That's mad. A little bit of convergent evolution. Very nice. They increase the blood pressure within small capillaries just inside the mouth. We're talking about Tropidophis species. The West Indian wood snakes, which are actually related to uh, boas, they're, they're boids. And um, basically, they increase the blood pressure in their mouths, and then the increasing pressure causes the capillaries to grow and burst, sending bright red rivulets of blood trickling down from the snake's mouth. And they use this in conjunction with musking, and it makes predators think that the, the snake mess. is decomposing. Or damaged, oh. or diseased. Wow, oh. that's fascinating. That's pretty smart. Yeah, that's so cool. That's so cool. That's a snake doing that. It's wild. Yeah, cool. Remarkable. Thank you for sharing that, Seb. That's awesome. That's wild. Um, what else? What else? There's I don't one know. You more got anything else? Um, oh, I think we were talking about the diet of Agkistrodon piscivorus. Oh, yes. The name would suggest it eats fish. Yeah. Um, can't remember the context. So what Scott is... Well, it was probably last one with the venom thing where we were talking about indigo snakes eating... eating them, right? Hmm. Ah. Was it the case that the garter snakes were immune? Yes. That's the ticket. Yeah. Yep. So garter snakes were immune to the venom of... Contortrix, which is... I always get those two mixed up. Okay, so we were talking about the fact that Thamnophis were immune to the venom of copperheads, right? It could have been copperheads, could have been cotton mouths. I forget which. Let me have a look. Ah, yeah, no. They were immune to the venom of copperheads, despite the fact that copperheads don't eat them. But um, cotton mouths do eat them, so there's a chance... Oh. That the reason that the garter snakes are immune... Is the similarity in the viper's venom between those two species of viper. Yeah, so there's like cross-protection. Hence them not being as good as the dry mark on and only having one aspect of that immunity. Because didn't they lack... Like the venom still had an impact on one aspect that they studied, but not on another? Uh, I... Like it wasn't as universal as the dry mark on... Uh, Resistance, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that sounds very familiar, what you're saying. Yeah. I think, gosh, yeah, maybe. But that makes a lot of sense, because you would expect two vipers like that to have very similar uh, venoms. 
Hmm. It's cool that Scott noticed guess, that, though. Yeah. And I don't think they mentioned that in the paper. Yeah. That it might be cross protection. Yeah. No, I, I think that's quite a that's quite a sensible reason. All right. Well, um, yeah, that's all the other business which I've got this week. Yeah, I guess. Well, I suppose the only other bit of business is if anybody's at the uh, venomous snakes as flagship species symposium in the Netherlands. I should be about there if anybody wants to say hi. Um, we should do another podcast before then, really. But I don't know whether it will come out before the actual date of the conference. No, no, it should. It should, just. It should come out two days before. Or three days before. Yeah, go and say hi to Ben, or better yet, heckle him. Well, the trick is, yeah, heckling me is going to be very tricky when I'm not giving a talk. You're doing a workshop, aren't you? And just doing, I'm doing a workshop, so <laughs> heckling me at a workshop is not going not gonna to do yourself any favours. <laughs> <laughs> I've got too much control. <laughs> Yeah, fair. No, if you want to lo- learn learn about dynamic Brownian bridge movement models when applied to snakes and, and uh, herpetofauna, hey, stop by for six hours or four hours. Right on. Good stuff. Yeah, should be good fun. Cool. Well, um, yeah, I think that just about rounds it up. Um, thanks yep. for listening. Thanks to everyone who got in touch with us. Um, yeah. And thank you for being patient. Yeah, we're going to be back in action. If you want to get in touch with us, you can herphighlights at gmail.com or we're on facebook.com slash herphighlights or we tweet at herphighlights. And yeah, thanks for listening. Thank you for listening.